Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Congress this week is on track to pass a $40 billion aid package to help Ukraine. And there's a growing bipartisan call to blacklist Russia as a state sponsor of terror. What's the White House's response? President Biden today touts plans to tackle inflation while attacking what he calls the GOP's ultra-MAGA agenda. In response, a Republican senator calls for him to resign. Ahead of the midterm elections, a third of Americans are reportedly worried about immigrants influencing U.S. elections. Those who are not eligible to vote, those who are not citizens, should not be listed on the voter roll. About 100 people picketed the home of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito last night. Now, Virginia's attorney general is calling on prosecutors to charge those protesters. But the White House says the president supports the protests as long as they're peaceful. And the CEO of social media platform Getter talks to NTD about his thoughts regarding online censorship. He's reacting to the recent lawsuit against the Biden administration over online free speech. Shows just how frustrated people are around the country about what they see with the elites and government colluding with big tech. There's a bipartisan call in Congress to designate Russia as a state sponsor of terror. Today, two senators suggested slapping this onto their soon-to-pass $40 billion bill to aid Ukraine. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the details tonight. Congress is on track this week to send more money to help Ukraine. $40 billion on the House agenda to pass tonight. And we dare not relent or delay swift action to help our friends in need. The $40 billion will fund security, weapons, and humanitarian assistance. This is in addition to the $14 billion already passed in March. Putin losing to me is priceless. Senator Graham, along with the Democrat senator, want to go further. Today, they're urging congressional leadership to attach to this billion-dollar aid package a measure to designate Russia as a state sponsor of terror. And it will put Russia outside the pale of civilized nations. President Zelensky asked Biden to take the step a few weeks ago, but so far the White House has slow walked that request. The White House says the U.S. has already used maximum efforts to hold Russia accountable. Extensive financial sanctions, export controls. But the senators say blacklisting Russia carries a heavy-weighted message. To the Russian people, change course, because if you stay with Putin, it's going to be a miserable existence for the Russian people. The two senators say they're hopeful this action would also send a message to other bad actors, such as China. And if we act to put Russia in this club, it will be another deterrent to China. And with the Chinese Communist Party not only posing a threat to Taiwan, but to their own people, could they possibly face a similar blacklist from the U.S. Senate? We know they're persecuting people of faith, they're engaged in, there's evidence of them doing forced organ harvesting. Would this not be enough to also label them as a state sponsored of terror? Well, we're focused on Russia because Russia has taken the international order and turned it upside down. The abuses you described in China, I think, are real. But if China went into Taiwan, I hope they understand what comes their way, right? 
and an invasion does not have to happen in order to designate a country a state sponsor of terror. After that press conference, we asked Senator Lindsey Graham what's holding the U.S. back from taking further action to hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable for their inhumane acts against their own people. Graham told me that while there may come a day for the U.S. to further hold China accountable, right now, politically, their focus is on Russia. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Renewing his pledge to fight inflation, President Biden today sharpens his midterm message and takes on what he calls the ultra-MAGA agenda. But Republicans are quick to fire back. NTD's Iris Tao has more. Uh, I want every American to know that I'm taking inflation uh, very seriously. President Biden is renewing his pledge to fight inflation. This as gas prices hit a fresh all-time high of $4.37 a gallon, according to a Tuesday report by AAA. And the president is blaming two things. It is a once-in-a-century pandemic, a second cause, Mr. Putin's war in Ukraine. And while touting his own plan, Biden is sharpening his attack on Republican plans, which he calls... It's the ultra-MAGA agenda. Their extreme agenda. Look at their agenda. He's accusing Republican proposals, in particular one by Senator Rick Scott, of trying to raise taxes on working families. Americans have a choice right now between two paths, reflecting two very different sets of values. And that surely does not only refer to economic policies. Here's the White House on Biden's ultra-mega reference today. And it's also the obsession with culture wars and wars against Mickey Mouse and banning books. President thinks that's extreme. They want. And so to him, adding a little ultra to it, give it a little extra pop. Republicans, meanwhile, are quick to fire back. Democrats' policies have unleashed the worst inflation in more than 40 years. And Senator Scott calls Biden's comments lies, releasing a statement saying the most effective thing Joe Biden can do to solve the inflation crisis he created is resign. Meanwhile, as part of his plan to ease inflation, Biden says he's weighing cuts to tariffs on China. Will you drop former President Trump's China tariffs? We're discussing that right now. And we are going to see the latest inflation numbers as soon as Wednesday morning when the Labor Department releases the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, for April. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. The United Nations chief says there must be no new investment in fossil fuel expansion. What does this mean for Americans? NTD's Jason Perry spoke with an expert on energy to find out. The United Nations Chief Antonio Guterres says there must be no new investment in fossil fuel expansion, which includes production, infrastructure, and exploration. Guterres is the former president of the Socialist International, an association that says it promotes democratic socialism. He also called on financiers to stop funding the entire coal sector, from mining to power generation, and to shift investments to renewable energies, such as solar and wind. NTD spoke with Larry Barrons, who is the communications director for Power the Future, an organization that shares facts and research on energy policies. Fossil fuels are so important to our society that even while the UN is saying everyone should be divesting, uh, the UN itself can't give them up, right? Uh, there's not a fleet of electric cars there. Uh, the UN president is not flying around on a solar powered, solar powered airplane. Um, you know, it is not wind power that is uh, moving the U.N. and powering that building. 
Barron's mentioned that President Biden has lowered the American supply of fossil fuels by cutting pipelines and not allowing permits to develop fossil fuels on public land. And when supply goes down, prices generally go up. And so Americans know that, and they're seeing every time they go to the pump now, that energy is a critical part of our lives. You know, every time they fill up their gas tank and they know they're paying more, much more than they were just two or three years ago, they understand why. It's because they have been forced down this road that the UN Secretary General wants the world to go down to and saying fossil fuels are not the future, but the quote unquote solutions that are brought forth from the other side are inter intermittent unreliable energy that is more expensive, and that's not how you build a society. We've seen that. The U.N. Secretary General's demands come after a year of rapidly increasing prices of coal, oil, and natural gas. Jason Perry, NTD News. Midterm elections are happening this year, and some Americans are worried about the impact immigrants have on our elections. A new poll shows that one in three fear that influence. According to a poll by the Associated Press, NORC Center for Public Affairs Research, about one in three U.S. adults believes an effort is underway to replace U.S.-born Americans with immigrants for electoral gains. When the census is conducted, congressional seats get either added or deducted in an area, depending on the number of people living there. That includes illegal immigrants, temporary workers, and foreign students. The allocation of congressional seats should be based upon the number of eligible citizens, uh, not necessarily counting uh, those who are illegally in the country. Thor Hearn is an expert in national election law and was President Bush's National Election Council in his 2004 presidential re-election campaign. He told NTD there are two more things that should be done to restore America's trust in the elections. Require photo ID with a affirmation of citizenship. That's why we also need a voter roll that is accurate and currently maintained, meaning those who are dead, those who are not eligible to vote, those who are not citizens should not be listed on the voter roll. He added that many won't trust the process in the upcoming midterms if those changes aren't made. Around 100 protesters showed up outside of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito's home last night, making him the third justice to have their home picketed in the last week. Virginia's attorney general is calling on prosecutors to charge the protesters. That's according to an exclusive report by the Epic Times. The state's governor, however, is facing criticism for not enforcing state law and shutting the protests down. NTD's Grace Coulter has the story. Protesters marched through suburban Virginia Monday night, making their way to the home of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. This, the latest protest over the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade. It was Justice Alito who drafted the leaked opinion, revealing the court's intention. Black bloc protesters were among the crowd, a tactic typically employed by anarcho-communist group Antifa. While the protests remained peaceful, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin is coming under fire for not shutting them down. In a Twitter post Monday night, Youngkin said his office was coordinating with local, state and federal police, who were monitoring the situation. But a number of conservatives are saying that the protesters should have been arrested for violating state and federal law. 
Under Federal U.S. Code 1507, it's illegal to attempt to influence federal officials and the outcome of a court case, including by picketing at a judge's residence. Meanwhile, Virginia law prevents picketing private homes. Over the weekend, protesters also gathered outside the homes of Justice Roberts in Kavanaugh. A new Trafalgar Group poll released Monday shows the overwhelming majority of Americans do not support this form of protest. When asked if they think posting the justices' addresses online and protesting at their homes is an acceptable way to protest the upcoming decision on Roe v. Wade, over 75% of respondents said no, while only just under 16% said yes. Grace Coulter, NTD News. And the White House today stated its position on the protests outside the justices' homes. Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the president supports the protests as long as they're peaceful. She also criticized conservatives who've expressed outrage at the protests but were silent about protests outside school boards, abortion clinics, and the U.S. Capitol. Here's Saki on the president's position. So I know that there's an outrage right now, I guess, about uh, protests that have been peaceful to date, and we certainly continue to encourage that outside of judges' homes, and that's the president's Saki went on to say the silence from the right on the other protests is deafening. The White House has faced repeated criticism for not condemning or discouraging the protests outside the justices' homes. Several conservative lawmakers and commentators have accused the Biden administration of allowing justices to be intimidated and put at risk. Meanwhile, the Senate, in response to the heightened risk to the safety of Supreme Court justices, has voted to beef up their protection. The legislation was approved Monday, passing unanimously. The bill would extend security protection to the justices' immediate family members. It also allows the Supreme Court police to arrest any individual who interferes with the court's ability to perform its duties. In addition, the bill creates a criminal penalty for anyone who impedes or obstructs those duties. The legislation now heads to the House of Representatives. Protests outside the conservative justices' homes are expected to continue. Left-wing activists and pro-abortion groups are planning a walk-by this Saturday. A former Democratic congressional candidate went viral on Twitter over the weekend, claiming Tennessee banned an emergency contraceptive called Plan B. The claim was false, but that didn't stop it from spreading like wildfire. In a now-deleted tweet, attorney Pam Keith wrote, Tennessee just banned Plan B and made it a crime punishable by a $50,000 fine to order it. Neither of these assertions are true, but by Monday afternoon, the tweet had been shared 27,000 times. A law signed by Tennessee's governor last week increased the penalties for distributing abortion medication by mail. Plan B, however which prevents a fertilized egg from attaching to the uterus, is not classed as abortion medication. Pro-abortion organizations and abortion providers in the state said the false information caused a lot of concern and confusion among residents. Keith says she mistook the law for ones proposed in other states. The Biden administration is facing a lawsuit from Missouri and Louisiana for allegedly colluding with big tech to censor free speech. Jason Miller, the CEO of social media platform Getter, shares with NTD his thoughts on the issue. Here are the details. Getter's CEO Jason Miller tells NTD that Missouri and Louisiana's lawsuit against Biden officials shows how frustrated people around the country are about the elites in government colluding with big tech. 
we saw this White House actually work with big tech companies to pick winners and losers in the free speech debate. So they would point out specific accounts that they thought were spreading from their perspective misinformation or disinformation and then would expect that to be withdrawn. That is wrong. On August 2021, Facebook censored a dozen accounts for violating their policies on COVID-19 vaccine disinformation. That's after the White House singled out the accounts. Miller says the Biden administration's creation of the Disinformation Governance Board will lead to another frontier of political discrimination. He explains why he thinks that way. Well, again, the disinformation, it's who is the one who's out there saying that it's disinformation? Who is fact-checking the fact-checkers? These fact-checkers all come with their own inherent biases. They all come with their own points of view, their own opinions. They're not these magical arbiters uh, where they're created perfectly without their own opinion. They have a very set-formed opinion that's usually left of center or very far left of center. The Getter CEO says he believes what the Biden administration is doing with social media is unconstitutional and that the federal government does not have the power to go and take away free speech rights as they're currently doing. I think that the federal government definitely has the ability to go and grant additional free speech rights or make decisions on that. But to go through and pick individual winners and losers in the free speech debate, uh, I think is a violation of the First Amendment. And I think ultimately these states will be successful. The lawsuit by Missouri and Louisiana names the censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story, the lab leak theory, and those questioning the efficacy of masks. They argue that the federal government violated Americans' First Amendment rights by suppressing free speech. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Elon Musk will soon become the new owner of Twitter. So what will become of the ban on former President Donald Trump's account? Musk says it was a mistake for Twitter to suspend the former president's account in early 2021. When asked if he would allow Trump back on the social media platform, Musk described Trump's ban as morally wrong and, quote, flat out stupid. He elaborated, quote, it alienated a large part of the country and did not ultimately result in Donald Trump not having a voice. Musk suggests that he will reverse Trump's ban and says permanent bans undermine trust in Twitter and should only be used for scams or bots. After it was announced last month that Musk would purchase the social media company, Trump told several news outlets that he would not return to Twitter. And now we hear from a former advisor to Russian President Vladimir Putin. Dr. Andrei Ilarionov resigned from his post in 2005 and has continued to speak out about the president's actions. So I asked, what does Putin really want? And if it's not for the betterment of the world, what should be done to stop it? Dr. Andrei Ilarionov, welcome. You've worked closely with Putin in the past and you're a prominent critic of his actions. Could you tell us a little more about that? Thank you for inviting me. Um, I was a critic of Mr. Putin even when I uh, was still an advisor to him. Uh, I'm an economist by training, and I was advising him on economic issues. But when I saw that uh, Mr. Putin is uh, not right, and when he's incorrect in any other issues, I was critical both privately as well as publicly. For example, when he tried to establish a dictatorship in Russia when I was still an advisor uh, to Mr. Putin. What's your take on Putin's Victory Day speech? Uh, Mr. Putin definitely wanted to use this opportunity to proclaim a victory in Ukraine, whatever victory. 
but unfortunately for him, he was not able to do it. He was forced to change his speech to something else. What is something else? It is not a victory speech, it's ideological speech. How far do his ambitions stretch, do you think? He has already said not at once that his goal, at least the current goal, is to so-called return to the 1997 division line in Europe, which means that the half of Europe, all Eastern and Central European countries, should be so-called denatoized, which means NATO should go out from these countries, it, which means that Putin, he himself, would establish his sphere of influence over half of Europe. That is his goal. What do you think the U.S. should do to maintain global peace going forward? One of the most important lessons that we have already learned from the first almost 16 months of the current administration in the White House, that the peace and security in the world with the current dictators that do exist in many countries in the world can be achieved through strength. It cannot be achieved through soft diplomacy, soft debates or talks or loose talks when tanks are rolling, whatever sanctions will be, whatever statement will be, whatever resolutions might be, they cannot stop those tanks. It's necessary to have a strength. That is why it is necessary to provide all necessary weapons, munitions, uh, material, fuel to Ukraine, that Ukraine with allies and friends could resist this aggression. Dr. Andrei Ilarionov, thank you. Thank you very much. Coming up, New York Governor Kathy Hochul announces a $35 million fund for abortion providers. This is the largest fund of its kind in the nation. And the NFL's greatest of all time, his new gig when he retires. See the record-setting amount Fox Sports will be paying Tom Brady to be their lead analyst. That and more coming up on NTD News. New York State is going to spend $35 million to fund abortion providers. Governor Kathy Hochul announced the decision today, saying she wants to guarantee access to abortion. We're not just playing defense, we're playing offense. And that's why we're taking immediate action starting today to deliver $35 million in unprecedented funding to urgently support abortion providers. This is New York State's first fund ever for abortion providers. $25 million will go to expanding capacity and access for patients seeking abortion. It will help abortion clinics deal with the influx of people coming from out of state. The other $10 million will go to security grants for abortion centers. The governor says this is the largest fund of its kind in the nation, and New York is the first large state to launch such a fund. Hochul says the money will come from the state health commissioner's emergency fund and won't impact the state budget. 7-Eleven has been hit with a class action privacy lawsuit. 
It accuses the convenience store chain of improperly using facial recognition technology to scan and remember customers' faces. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. In 2008, the Illinois legislature passed the Biometric Information Privacy Act to stop private companies from collecting consumers' personal information without asking. But it seems 7-Eleven didn't get the memo. In the second filing in less than two weeks, customers are accusing the convenience store franchise of using surveillance technology that takes a print of their faces as soon as they enter the store. The law requires companies to inform customers in writing that the data is being collected and get written consent. The complaint alleges that different 7-Eleven stores in Chicago use a surveillance system that includes facial detection technology and that 7-Eleven's privacy policy doesn't mention it uses this technology, nor does it tell its customers. We reached out to 7-Eleven but did not hear back before broadcast time. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. In the NFL, star quarterback Tom Brady continues to dominate headlines this offseason with Tuesday's latest announcement that he's headed to Fox Sports as the lead NFL analyst upon retirement. The move means the eventual Hall of Famer will follow in the footsteps of fellow retired quarterbacks Tony Romo, Drew Brees, Eli Manning, and Peyton Manning, who've all gone into sportscasting. Brady is scheduled to call games with Kevin Burkhart as the lead play-by-play -play announcer whenever his playing days are over. The New York Post is reporting that Brady's agreement with Fox is a whopping 10-year, $375 million deal that marks the largest in sportscasting history. Brady's deal is set to dwarf the $18 million annual salaries of Troy Aikman and Tony Romo. The seven-time Super Bowl winner started this offseason by announcing his retirement only to unretire just 40 days later. This fall, he's set to be the oldest starting quarterback ever at age 45. In the NBA tonight, we have a pair of pivotal Game 5s on the schedule. First, Miami hosts Philadelphia in a series tied at two games apiece, with neither team healthy. Sixers star Joel Embiid is again listed as day-to-day, -day, though the expectation is that he'll play, given the circumstances. He'll need another great performance from teammate James Harden, who broke out of his mini-slump in Game 4, nailing six threes and scoring 31 points. Miami lists six players this day today, including sixth man of the year, Tyler Hero. Veteran all-star Kyle Lowry, meanwhile, is out again with a hamstring injury. In the second game, Dallas travels to Phoenix in a series that's also tied at two. Newly minted coach of the year, Monty Williams, will look to rally his team after dropping the last two games. Chris Paul, who turned 37 Friday, had a pair of forgettable contests after fouling out of game three with five points and then having as many assists as turnovers in Game 4. The Mavs, meanwhile, will look to continue their hot shooting as nearly everyone, except for Luka Doncic, ironically, shot it well from beyond the arc in Game 4. In the NHL, four first-round Game 5s are on tap tonight, with all four series tied at two games apiece. Carolina hosts Boston, Tampa Bay is at Toronto, Minnesota is at home against St. Louis, and Los Angeles plays Edmonton, north of the border. In other NHL news, the finalists for the Vezina Trophy, given to the league's top goalie, were announced Tuesday. Jacob Markstrom of Calgary, Yusuf Saros of Nashville, and the Rangers' Igor Shesterkin were all named finalists for the first time in their careers. Last year, Marc-Andre Fleury won the award while playing for Vegas. 
Meanwhile, the NHL's draft lottery will be held tonight to determine the order for the first 16 picks of the draft. Two lotteries will be held for the first and second picks, and once those are determined, teams will be slotted in order based on their regular season finish. The league-worst Montreal Canadiens have the best odds of winning the lottery. That's all for sports today. Back to you, Steph. Up next, car not charging. Apparently more than a quarter of electric car charging stations in the San Francisco Bay Area aren't working. Problems range from short cables or unresponsive screens to payment failures. And we're one month away from California's primary elections. But recently, a woman allegedly found a box of mail-in ballots on the sidewalk in Southern California. The local registrar is investigating. That and much more when we return on NTD News. Electric car owners in the Bay Area may have personally run into this situation. A recent study shows that more than a quarter of electric car charging stations in and around San Francisco are not working. The study also suggests the need for more reliable charging stations. According to a study titled Reliability of Open Public Electric Vehicle Direct Current Fast Chargers, about 72% of electric car charging stations in the Bay Area are functional. The study surveyed 657 plugs at 181 public stations across nine counties in the Greater Bay Area. It did not include Tesla charging stations. If the plugs charged an electric vehicle for two minutes, it was determined to be functional. The report found that about 5% of the stations had cables that were too short to reach the EV. 22.7% of the stations had unresponsive or unavailable screens, payment system failures, charge initiation failures, network failures, or broken connectors. In a random 10% sample of the charging systems, about eight days after the first evaluation, there was no overall change in how they function. In conclusion, the findings suggest there needs to be precise definitions and calculations for reliability, uptime, downtime, and excluded time for public EV charging stations with third-party verification. A woman allegedly found a box of abandoned mail-in ballots on a sidewalk in Hollywood. She reported it to officials, and USPS, along with the county registrar, are investigating ahead of an upcoming June election. We hear more from NTD's David Lamb. This large box of mail-in ballots was found sitting out on a public sidewalk in Hollywood on May 7th. The U.S. Postal Service and Los Angeles County Registrar's Office said they are investigating the incident. The Registrar's Office told media outlets on Monday evening, our office was notified over the weekend of a mail tray found containing approximately 104 unopened, outbound vote-by-mail ballots and additional mail pieces. The ballots were discovered by Christina Rapacci, who was walking her dog on Saturday evening in East Hollywood. She told Fox 11, I turned the corner and I just saw this box of envelopes, and it was a USPS box. I picked some envelopes up and I saw they were mail ballots. She was concerned that if another person found it, they might have thrown them away. This comes ahead of California's statewide election on June 7th. According to the Secretary of State's office, 
Primary election ballots will include candidates for positions such as U.S. Senators, the Governor, the Attorney General, along with other positions. David Lamb, NTD News, California. It looks like the escaped inmate captured in Indiana after a nationwide manhunt is headed back to jail in Alabama. Casey White waived his extradition hearing Tuesday during a virtual appearance in Evansville courtroom. We have him presently in our Vandiver County Jail. He signed a waiver of extradition to go back to Alabama. I've notified the sheriff there and they are going to make arrangements to pick the suspect up and return him to the state of Alabama. White said he wanted to return to Alabama to face murder charges and now charges connected to his 11 days on the run with former corrections officer Vicki White. Despite sharing the same name, the two were not related. They were captured after a police chase ended with a crash Monday. Vicki White died from a possibly self-inflicted gunshot wound. Authorities believe she took her own life, but say they are waiting for the coroner's confirmation. Police also found $29,000 left over in the fugitive's car and at least four handguns. And Florida has topped the nation in terms of price and rent increases. Floridians are being forced to move out of their homes with the average rent in Miami up 58% over the past two years. NTD's Faye Quarter has more. Rental prices have gone up almost 20% over two years, and Florida is seeing most of the largest price surges. Miami, the steepest of all, a 58% rise over the past two years. Tampa, 45.8%. Orlando, 34.7%. And Jacksonville, 29.2%. Floridians are being priced out of their own homes. Peter Gray is the president of Pyramid Real Estate Group. Gray says he sees this happening more and more. You can only build so much at some point. You know, materials have gone up, prices have gone up, and areas that grow faster. Other reasons include the end of the rent moratorium. Landlords are now making up for lost rent, as well as an influx from other places. So I was changing the career, and I decided to change them uh, where I was going to live. Kenny Polkari is a managing partner at Case Capital Advisors. Polkari left Manhattan for Florida before COVID hit and currently still resides there. He initially rented an apartment at West Palm Beach for $5,000. And we just moved out and the, the woman who owns the apartment after we moved out raised the rent by uh, 70%. 70%. More and more finance and tech professionals are coming to Florida because of lower taxes and a more business-friendly environment, says the Wall Street Journal. These people are high earners who brush aside these high rent prices. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, after his release from a Chinese prison, a man talks about his experience doing forced labor. He spent five years on the inside. Ukraine's port city of Odessa hit with missiles. And President Biden signs a World War II-era Lend-Lease program bill that aims to increase military aid to Ukraine. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. A man survived five years in Chinese prisons. He's now talking about his experience inside. He was sentenced to forced labor and had to make shoes, purses, and backpacks. NTD's Don Ma has the story. 
A person subject to forced labor in a Chinese prison speaks of his first-hand experience after being released last Friday. So the factory at Qishan Prison mainly makes gloves, shoes, purses, and backpacks. That's everyone's main work. The reason why I say it's a sweatshop is because its work regulations are in violation of the prison law and labor laws of its own country. Li Mingchi is a rights advocate from Taiwan. He was arrested by Chinese authorities in 2017 after entering mainland China. He says the living conditions in prison were far from ideal. During winter in the prison, there was no warm water to shower with. Even at minus 2 to 3 degrees Celsius, they make us shower with freezing cold water. Slowly, the prison fixed it and gave us warm water. The food they serve us often smells rotten. One possible reason why he was arrested is that while in Taiwan, he would send and disseminate books into China that were critical of the Chinese Communist Party. After his arrest, a Chinese court sentenced Li to five years in prison. He was charged with what the Chinese regime calls subverting state power. He says while in prison, he was forced to work long hours with little rest. China's prison law actually states that the working hours allowed for prisoners are similar to those defined by the labor law, China's labor law, eight working hours per day, not more than nine hours per day. But as I just said, we have to work 11 to 12 hours each day, often without days off and being requested to work overtime on holidays. Fred Rockefeller is an attorney for Harris Bricken. He has had personal exposure to forced labor as part of investigations while working with clients in China. Forced labor in China has gotten international attention in recent years, including from the U.S. But Rockefeller says that the United States may actually be buying Chinese forced labor products. It is, it has been, it is impossible for the authorities uh, here in the United States to, to effectively exclude all of the products that uh, have been made using forced labor. So I think as, as troubling as, as this is, uh, I think we can, we can say with a, with a very high degree of certainty that at this moment um, in the U.S. marketplace, there are uh, a lot of products that were made using forced labor uh, available for sale. Rockefeller says it's reasonable to assume that there is correlation between Chinese forced labor and why made-in-China products are cheap. Don Ma, NTD News. Russia hit buildings in Ukraine's port city of Odessa with missiles on Monday. That's according to Ukrainian officials. The attack was carried out on Russia's Victory Day, a celebration of the defeat of Nazi Germany in World War II. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the latest. In Ukraine's major Black Sea port, buildings in Odessa lay in ruins on Tuesday. Russia launched missiles hitting a shopping center and a depot, injuring five and killing one person, according to Ukraine's armed forces. Emergency workers put out fires and searched through piles of rubble. In video footage released by Ukraine's state emergency service, NTD is not able to independently verify the authenticity or the date of the footage. Ukrainian officials say the missiles were fired from the Russian-controlled Crimea Peninsula. This, a day after Russia's celebration of victory over the Nazis in World War II. Ukraine and its allies are increasing efforts to unblock ports and provide alternate routes for export for the major corn and wheat producing country. 
The World Health Organization European chief says at least 3,000 avoidable deaths have been caused in Ukraine because of lack of access to treatments for chronic diseases. Around 200 attacks on healthcare facilities in Ukraine have taken place, according to the WHO, leaving very few hospitals functioning. The hospitals left in operation are tending to life-threatening bullet, shrapnel and burn injuries. 40% of households have at least one member in need of chronic treatment that they can no longer find. WHO officials are investigating for possible war crimes and are considering closing a major regional office in Moscow, among other measures against Russia. It is a breach of international humanitarian law. Russia denies targeting civilians during the war. I was just talking to her about President Joe Biden signed a bipartisan bill to reset the World War II era lend lease program I, uh, that helped defeat Nazi Germany with an aim to reinforce Kyiv and Eastern European allies. And, uh, to reaffirm the enduring commitment to the future grounded in democracy, human rights, and peaceful resolution of disagreements, I'm now going to sign this bill. Done. The legislation will streamline U.S. military assistance to Ukraine by easing requirements to lend or lease military equipment to Kyiv. It will also ensure the U.S. is reimbursed. The bill comes as U.S. Congress is proposing another $40 billion in aid to Ukraine, with another COVID-19-related funding bill to come. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. As Sweden prepares for the possibility of joining NATO, the strategically placed island of Gotland is bolstering its defenses once again. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Sweden withdrew its forces from Gotland following the collapse of the Soviet Union three decades ago. Now the Scandinavian nation is hastily rebuilding its military presence on the island. We are in a growth phase in which we have the so-called capability increase. There will be more soldiers and more activity on the continent because we have to build a bigger and better military capacity due to the current situation. The 105-mile-long rocky outcrop in the middle of the Baltic Sea lies just 186 miles from the home of Russia's Baltic fleet. In 2018, it reactivated the Army's Gotland Regiment and has also reinforced the island's defense with ground-to-air missiles. The buildup was sparked by Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014. In the short term, the military situation would improve for Sweden and Gotland because the threshold effect to attack a NATO country is higher for Russia, in this case, than to attack a country that is not part of NATO. Many locals are volunteering with the Home Guard. Camilla Selander, a deli counter worker, squeezed off shots during target practice. Yes, people are a bit worried, but we're trying to keep everybody calm so that we can talk about what is happening and tell each other that it will be fine. Russian troops briefly occupied Gotland in 1808. The island is seen as important to the defense of Sweden and NATO's vulnerable Baltic members, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia. If the Russians would occupy parts of Sweden, that would create some kind of, let's call it a wall that NATO would have to fight its way through before being able to help its Baltic members. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has forced Sweden and neighboring Finland to rethink security policy and whether they can remain safe outside NATO. Both countries are expected to decide whether to apply for membership in the 30-nation alliance in May. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. French President Emmanuel Macron says it's unrealistic that Ukraine would soon join the European Union. Instead, he proposed the creation of a new political organization that could bring together countries on the continent that share European values. And this could include the UK. More on this from NTD's Anna Rodriguez.
at the European Parliament, a ceremony focused on how EU institutions should evolve and what their priorities should be. Monday was Europe Day, a day the EU wanted to show support to Ukraine, which had submitted an application to join the bloc. The French president put cold water on the idea of a rapid ascension. Ukraine. Ukraine, because of its struggle and because of its courage, is already a member of Europe, of our family, of our union. But we all know only too well that the process for accession would take several years. In fact, it would probably take several decades. He spoke after the European Commission said it aims to deliver a first opinion following Ukraine's request to become a member of the bloc next month. Macron said he rejects a fast-track procedure because it means lowering standards. Instead, he proposed the creation of what he called a European political community, which would be open to countries who haven't joined the EU, or those who like the United Kingdom who have left it. Later in Berlin, he elaborated, We must find a political form that enables to dock to Europe some states that share the same values and geography and to build together a political coordination, probably some form of solidarity in terms of security, and which are not the same as NATO, but some elements of cooperation, solidarity, to be defined. This was his first visit abroad after his re-election. He joined German Chancellor Olaf Scholz at Brandenburger Gate that was illuminated in the colors of the Ukrainian flag. Anna Rodriguez, NTD News. Coming up, indoor golf booming since the pandemic started. We hear from two businesses that are seeing tremendous growth. And following safety concerns over wildfires, several Western regions are moving toward drone displays as opposed to traditional fireworks. We'll have more on that after this short break. Since the pandemic hit, golfing has caught on unexpectedly. According to National Golf Foundation, a record 3.2 million first-timers picked up the sport in 2021. That's in addition to 3 million new golfers in 2020. And when golf courses got crowded, another activity started booming, indoor golf. So here's the story. Social distancing during the pandemic has boosted demand for golfing. With tea time hard to book, indoor golfing venues are popping up in more places to meet the needs of golf enthusiasts. Trevor Faust is president of Ace Indoor Golf, an Ohio-based indoor golf builder. He says he's seen tremendous growth. We've grown over 100% now uh, going on our third consecutive year. Right now, our company has been uh, almost at capacity, right? Uh, there's been such tremendous demand. So for us, we're constantly trying to grow. We're bringing on new team members. Faust says technology adoption is another growth driver. Ace Indoor Golf currently has an annual revenue between 10 and 15 million dollars, and Faust expects to double the revenue in the coming 12 to 24 months. With the adoption now of technology on the PGA Tour, you see that a lot with customers are, I should say, uh, technologies like TrackMan and Top Tracer and things of that nature. Uh, the adoption rate has grown significantly. Jin Park, an avid golfer, saw an opportunity for indoor golfing during the pandemic. 
they're just in over in Asia and other parts of the world there's so many of these type of indoor type simulators and in the u.s there just really isn't anything um, there's only a few really small competitors so park invested nearly three million dollars in his first indoor golfing venue game of irons in oak brook illinois its south korean made golf simulators offer 200 golf courses around the world including the popular pebble beach golf course in california what these simulators are trying to do is really simulate playing a full round of golf on a course. Um, so we have multiple hitting mats. So you've got your fairway, your rough, and your bunker. You've got an auto ball tee, so you don't have to go fetching your ball every time. Um, and the most impressive thing is that you have a tilting platform. The tilting platform simulates the angle of the terrain. Park says the realistic simulator is for both beginner and advanced golfers. I think the greatest thing uh, about playing indoors is you get a lot of feedback. You know, if we're on the driving range indoors, it will tell you your ball speed, it will tell you your club head speed, it will tell you are you slicing it. Park envisions the indoor golf venue as a place not only for golfers, but also for corporate outings and family gatherings. It's just something that we, we look at this as kind of the future of what bowling used to be. Everyone used to go bowling with their friends and family. This is the next generation of bowlers. Both Park and Faust are very optimistic about the indoor golf industry. They are looking to grow their operations in the next year or so. Reporting by NTD's Angela Moy. This year, some communities will use drones instead of fireworks to create a celebratory display come Independence Day. It's a trend gaining momentum due to safety concerns, especially concerning wildfires. Here are the details. When the Caldor Fire raced toward the southern shore of Lake Tahoe last year, its 100-foot flames spread across the tree canopy. It has prompted the region to consider safer alternatives to the traditional firework displays. Incline Village and the neighboring California towns of Kings Beach and Tahoe City switched to drones after the devastating fire. People have figured out that it is, you know, a very fire-friendly, safe, um, version of uh, celebrating the 4th of July and other celebrations. The fire burned for 69 days, scorched over 200,000 acres, and forcing the evacuation of 50,000 people. Some towns now completely reject fireworks as a wildfire risk. So we, we looked at the safety issues uh, around uh, fireworks. You know, I, I kind of look at the concept of litty, lighting, you know, throwing lit objects up into the sky. And is that the best thing to do at the height of the fire season? So there's a safety issue. Chapman added, there's also an environmental and sustainability factor. Some of the debris that does happen that lands in the water that we have cleaned up every time we've done these in the past. But there are some environmental issues with the debris that does get into the water and that lake is our drinking water. A typical drone show has dozens or hundreds of tiny lit flying machines choreographed to music, forming improbable and multicolored designs. Julie Heckman, executive director of the American Pyrotechnics Association, says drones are not yet considered a serious threat to fireworks displays. When you think of traditional fireworks, it's a multi-sensory experience. You know, we want to see them burst in the sky. We want to hear them. We want to feel that concussion in our chest. And if we're close enough, we might just smell the smoke. Where drones, you have a visual effect, but you don't get that multi-sensory experience. Despite amounting to a mere fraction of July 4th displays scheduled this year, around half a dozen drone companies in the close-knit industry are collaborating to help meet demand. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. 
I'm Stephanie Cox.